You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Lucinda Larnock. This is the WFHB Local News 4, Thursday, July 21st, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Tilly Robinson takes a look at the blue-green algae blooms in Lake Monroe. More in the bottom half of our program. Also coming up in the next half hour, Indiana Senate Republicans introduced a bill to ban abortion in the state prior to a special session on July 25th. That's coming up in your State House Roundup. Good afternoon. This is your State House Roundup, and I'm Lucinda Larnock. Indiana Senate Republicans introduced a bill that would ban abortion ahead of a special session that will take place on Monday, July 25th. Senate Bill 1 would ban almost all abortions in Indiana except in cases of rape, incest or where the life of the mother is in danger. If passed, Indiana would be among the states with the greatest restriction against abortion. Senate Republicans have introduced a companion bill that would allocate $45 million to support pregnant women and families. Senate President Pro Tem Roderick Bray, a Republican from Martinsville, spoke Wednesday regarding the bill leading up to the next week's special session. First, of course, deals with the abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. This decision allows each state to determine its own policy on abortion, And I acknowledge that in doing so, it opens arguably the most difficult, polarizing issue that we face in the generation. I understand the passion that exists on both sides. Nevertheless, it is our job in the Indiana General Assembly to chart a course for Indiana and determine what our position is on this extremely difficult issue. Indiana Senate Minority Leader Greg Taylor, a Democrat from Indianapolis, criticized the proposed bill, saying Indiana residents should be concerned that this is an outright ban of abortion. I think this is a clear indication that we're in trouble and that the state of Indiana has determined that it's time to take a a step back in regards to women's health. Um, While I did have a chance to peruse some of the uh, information in the bill, the proposed bills that are opening up. There were two glaring issues that I think the citizens of the state of Indiana should be very concerned about. One is that this is an outright ban on abortion. There are no time period exceptions for abortion under this legislation. In addition, the rape and incest, you're gonna ask a woman to admit on an affidavit that is supposed to be confidential, but there will be no penalties, listen to this, for the male who actually committed that rape or incest. That is a step back 
on protection for women. Last but not least, if you notice in the schedule, the health committee is no longer going to receive this piece of legislation. The health committee in the Senate has six females on the committee out of 12. This legislation will go to rules, which is run by the leader, President Pro Tem Bray, has one female, the author of this legislation. That is a clear, that is factual, and that is clear that women in the start of this discussion will have very little, if any, voice. I find it hard to stand here as a male having this discussion with you about abortion because it's not a decision that I would ever have to make for myself. But for those women here in the state of Indiana who are watching and who understand what this means, this is not a step in the right direction. Lawmakers will meet at the State House for special session on Monday. The Senate bills are expected to be voted out of committee by Tuesday afternoon. Public testimony will be heard at 1pm on Monday and again from 9am to noon on Tuesday. Links to sign up for public testimony will be available at wfhb.org following this broadcast. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnick. In today's feature report, WFHB correspondent Tilly Robinson takes a look at blue-green algae blooms in Lake Monroe. The Indiana Department of Natural Resources placed parts of Lake Monroe at the advisory alert level for blue-green algae last Friday. The alerts apply to beaches at the Paintown and Fairfax State Recreation Areas. Ginger Murphy is the Deputy Director for Stewardship for Indiana State Parks. She explained that the Indiana Department of Natural Resources uses four alert levels to classify blue-green algae risk. First is low risk. Second is advisory. Third is caution. And fourth, closed. Murphy defined the advisory alert level. What that simply means is that there is a higher cell count and that there is the potential as those algae cells die for some toxins to be produced in small amounts. Under the advisory alert level, swimming and boating are still permitted. However, the DNR urges lake visitors to avoid contact with algae. Swimmers should try not to swallow lake water and should bathe or shower with warm soapy water after swimming. Lake water should not be used to cook or bathe, and pets should not be allowed to swim or drink the water. Murphy explained why blue-green algae can be especially dangerous to pets. Dogs in particular can be more impacted than humans by algae and toxins. Simply, they, they drink the water, you can't control it. They lick their fur when they get out, and if there's algae cells on their fur, it can get into their system and it can cause damage to the liver and death. The DNR only tests for blue-green algae at its beaches, where dogs are usually prohibited. But that doesn't mean algae isn't present elsewhere. So we simply encourage people to use caution 
when they let their pets into any water anywhere, whether it's on DNR property or not, and make sure as soon as they get out, they have fresh water to drink and that they get a bath too. 11 Indiana beaches are currently at the advisory alert level, and 10 other beaches are at the low-risk alert level. No beaches have been placed under the caution alert level or closed. Murphy said that's normal for this time of year. The number of advisory alert levels that we have at our beaches across the state is pretty typical. It goes up a little bit, usually in July. We, for the most part, stay at low risk um, other than two or three or four lakes in the early summer, and then it usually rises in July. Despite its name, blue-green algae is not actually algae. Instead, it's a different type of phytoplankton known as cyanobacteria. The website of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention explains that although they are bacteria, blue-green algae do not cause infections. Instead, they cause harm by emitting toxins. Exposure to these cyanotoxins can lead to rashes, skin or eye irritation, stomach aches, nausea, and tingling in the fingers or toes. Bloomington's tap water, which comes from Lake Monroe, is still safe to drink. But cyanobacteria blooms can affect drinking water. Bloomington Utilities Director Vic Kelson explained that there are two main problems. The first uh, class of issues is taste and odor. For many, many years, until uh, 2017, Bloomington's tap water had sort of, people would say it tasted like a lake in the summertime, and it did for years and years. In 2017, we started feeding powdered activated carbon at the treatment plant in order to help us with controlling disinfection byproducts. And one of the side effects of doing that was that the taste and odor problems virtually vanished. We've had very, very few taste and odor complaints since 2017. Taste and odor compounds affect the flavor of the water, but they don't pose health concerns. But some species of blue-green algae also produce toxins. Uh, blue-green alga is basically a sack full of liquid with some other stuff inside. When they die, that sack breaks and whatever's inside gets released into the water. The same technology that removes taste and odor compounds can also remove algal toxins. Kelson explained that city utilities have detected high levels of algae in the raw water that enters the Monroe Water Treatment Plant, but they're not out of line with historical data. And that algae is not in the water coming out of your tap. After treatment, we're uh, ending up with low concentrations of taste and odor chemicals, and we're having non-detects for the algal toxins. Last year, the plant had just one sample where algal toxins reached detectable levels, at 0.1 micrograms per liter. Even that was well below recommended limits. Several factors can cause blue-green algae blooms. Cyanobacteria thrive in warmer water. Droughts can also worsen cyanobacteria blooms because shallower pools of water tend to warm up more easily. Kelson explained that hot, dry weather caused high concentrations of taste and odor compounds in late June and early July. When the temperatures were so hot and we went weeks, three weeks or so without any rain, those are perfect conditions for raising concentrations of taste and odor and algal toxins in the water column. But it rained, and then after it rained, uh, those raw water concentrations went way down. Both Murphy and Kelson say that blue-green algae levels have been stable across recent years. 
in the 10 or so years that I have been engaged with it, I have not seen a whole lot of change. The data we have at our disposal has not shown any major change in the presence of, of these chemicals in the raw water. But Kelson is concerned about how climate change could affect cyanobacteria blooms. When you look at a, a world with a warming climate, it's intuitive to me anyway that eventually we may start to see this become more common. The Environmental Protection Agency agrees that a hotter climate may support more cyanobacteria blooms. And warmer water isn't the only climate risk. The Indiana Climate Change Impacts Assessment, a report by Purdue University researchers, explains that climate change will lengthen the growing season and increase spring precipitation in Indiana. More rain and earlier planting and distribution of fertilizer will increase the runoff of agricultural nutrients into the water potentially feeding harmful algal blooms. In the meantime, though, Lake Monroe is more protected than many reservoirs in Indiana. Uh, there's no industrial development and not a lot of residential development in its watershed. According to the Friends of Lake Monroe, 82% of the reservoir's watershed is forested. If you want to stay up to date about cyanobacteria safety and prevention, Murphy has a couple website recommendations. I just suggest that people take a look at algae.in.gov. The Indiana DNR also maintains a webpage on blue-green algae blooms, and they post weekly updates on the Indiana State Park's Facebook. New sampling results will be released tomorrow. For WFHB, I'm Tilly Robinson. Up next, we have Civic Conversations, a monthly podcast collaboration with the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County and WFHB. Founder of the Bloomington Refugee Support Network, Diane Legomsky, joins Civic Conversations to discuss the issue of refugee support in Bloomington and nationally. In the podcast, host Jim Allison speaks with Diane about the mission of Bloomington Refugee Support Network and how it interacts with other refugee resettlement organizations like Exodus Refugee Immigration. We turn now to the July edition of Civic Conversations. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say you can find Civic Conversations every month on WFHB at both 93.1 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Diane Legomsky. Diane is founder and consultant for the Bloomington Refugee Support Network. Welcome, Diane. Thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, first of all, Diane, why don't you tell us what is exactly the Bloomington Refugee Support Network? What's its mission and how is it supported also? It's a 501c3 organization, completely volunteer, and it's supported by grants and donations. And its mission is to support, as a kind of wraparound service, immigrants in the Bloomington and Monroe County area. 
Okay, let's talk a little bit about some of the basic services that you provide. I'm sure that these people need a lot of basic services, medical, legal, transportation, and God knows what all probably. Why don't you tell us some of those things? Yes, they, you're absolutely right. They do need medical care, and we refer them to medical facilities as well as dentists, pediatricians, mental health networks, and so forth, various resources. Uh, we also show them where the food pantries are, how to get the various uh, benefits that they're entitled to, such as SNAP and others. And we give them transportation to purchase uh, items from, say, Opportunity House or Goodwill. And we also just offer basic friendship. We show them how to you know, open a bank account. We help them find employment. We also get them to lawyers when they need legal assistance. Mm -hmm. to get, for example, um, asylum or whatever it is they might be seeking. Mm -hmm. So we're pretty much there for whatever they might need. Okay. Did I hear you say that this is an all-volunteer organization? Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay. Tell us something about the, uh, the Indiana Resettlement Agencies and what their role is. Okay. They are also 501c3s. They do have a fair amount of staff, paid staff members some full-time, some volunteer. And they're there to re resettle refugees and to help resettle asylum seekers. <coughs> they have off they've opened an office in Bloomington. And right now the Bloomington Refugee Support Network is helping under the aegis of Exodus. But they basically take care of everything the refugee might know, might need, including finding housing, finding employment, um, helping get certified for certain employment, and also getting their benefits set and getting them to legal help they might need. Okay. What about immigration issues? I imagine quite a number of immigration issues probably come into play in the life of a refugee. Why don't you tell us something about that? Oh, absolutely. They pretty much falls into two categories. The let's say emotional and the practical. Emotionally, really every refugee and just about every asylum-seeking uh, family here has suffered the loss of a family member, has suffered the loss of their homeland and everything they were used to and everyone they knew. And on a practical level, they're, it's as though they have arrived on a different planet Things that we take for granted are brand new to them. Everything from figuring out the bus system to how to open a bank account. Um, in, in fact, one, I'll be very brief here, but one episode um, that I was aware of is that um, a person who came here as a 12-year-old with his parents from Lebanon uh, went to the grocery store with his mother. And his mother understood that she had to pay for the items she was putting into the cart. And when she got to the cashier, the cashier said something like $30. And his mother said, I'll give you $25. <laughs> and he, did he, he do it? <laughs> no, his mother did not understand. And this is something that seems so obvious to us, even how to use the telephone in some cases. Yeah. It's so obvious to us, as are the various rights that we you know, take for granted. Mm -hmm. So they, they really need help um, with the things that sometimes don't occur to us. That's why we encourage, um, try to 
establish a friendship with the family and get used to what they're used to and help them learn English and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we really have to approach it with a very open mind. Yeah, well, the example you gave is a very charming example. At least I find it charming. <laughs> now, <laughs> you, take you, nothing for granted. <laughs> yeah, uh, you, you've been talking about refugees and asylum seekers. I'm not sure I know what the difference is between a refugee and asylum seeker. Would you clarify that for me? Sure. First of all, one similarity between both groups is that to qualify as a refugee and to be accepted as a refugee, likewise to be granted asylum, you must meet the following criterion. And that is that you have a well-reasoned and well-documented fear of returning to your home country for fear of persecution on the following grounds. Could be religion, race, nationality, membership in a particular social group, and that depends on the country, or membership in a particular political group or of a particular political opinion. Again, it depends on the country both to be granted refugee status status or asylum status, that's needed. Refugees are accepted as refugees prior to entering the U.S. So they've been vetted for safety reasons and medical reasons by international agencies, as well as United States government agencies. Asylum seekers now have to apply for asylum as soon as they step into the country at a port of entry, they're undocumented until then, and in severe danger, they could be deported, imprisoned, anything. So they have to start applying very, very quickly. Once they do, they're safe here while their application is being processed. But it's a very tricky thing. Both, both groups do have a path to citizenship, but the primary problem with a lot of asylum seekers is they have to, um, really explain in great detail what their fears are. And so many of them have just trained themselves to play things very close to the vest. So it's sometimes hard for them to open up as to what they're what they've been through and what they fear. Mm -hmm, I see. Uh, there's another distinction I'm not real clear mm -hmm. on. Maybe you've touched on this already, but let's return to it if so uh, I'm talking about refugee and humanitarian parolee. What is the difference between a refugee and a humanitarian parolee. Okay, a humanitarian parolee, unlike a refugee, is here only temporarily. Uh, another word for a parolee is uh, someone on TPS, temporary, temporary protected status. It's usually granted if the home country is unable, usually, often for natural disaster reasons, to provide safely for its residents, once in a while for employment, such as farm workers, but it is a it is a temporary placement. Um, oh, would Ukraine fall into that category now? Maybe it probably would. It hasn't been done officially yet, but I imagine it will be very soon. Things are changing regarding Ukraine in our um, resettlement process every day, so it's hard to know. But um, but what President Biden has done is um, in the past, if you were on temporary protected status. When the uh, humanitarian parolee, when the home country and our State Department agree that the home country can safely take you back, there you go. And President Biden has issued an executive order excusing most of the humanitarian parolees from being forced back to their home country. So mm -hmm. it's it's been quite a benefit to them. I see. Okay. One of the reasons I bring this up is that my understanding, I think I get it from you, is that Afghans 
settling in Indianapolis are mostly refugees, <laughs> but those being resettled in Bloomington are mostly humanitarian parolees. Is that is that correct? That that is correct. So when they apply, when they when the humanitarian parolees come to Bloomington, they need to start right away applying for a special immigrant visa or asylum. They need to do that quickly and with the help of an attorney, an immigration attorney. And right now, the Bloomington Office of Exodus is assisting with that, getting them to the right legal resources. But they must do that very quickly. And there's okay. other other things they have to do really quickly too. So Exodus is helping the welcoming teams. I see. Get that okay. Done. A lot of us have heard about dreamers. Has there been any recent legislation protecting dreamer status since President Biden was elected? Uh, no, it's it's been just the opposite. I, I should say President Biden is trying to um, pass legislation that would help them. Um, you know, technically, a dreamer <coughs> is someone who is on um, is a young person or someone who came here as a young person and um, has is a recipient of DACA deferred action and deferred is critical for childhood arrivals. Um, President Obama had started this program. Um, he said that you know the you know our, our our own government can't possibly hear and maybe deport everyone that technically would qualify. So DACA recipients were kind of given a certain class that the action regarding them, legal action would be deferred. And that is a matter of prosecutorial discretion. So he was allowed to do that. Um, and President Biden tried to pass a DREAM Act, which would give dreamers um, longer time here and a path to citizenship and employment authorization. Right now, they don't have it. They have to apply for renewal every two years. So it didn't make it through Congress. It didn't make it through Congress. And the worst setback, the tragic setback, is a ruling by the Fifth Circuit Court federal judge, Judge Hannon, who said, who declared in just about 10 days ago, in, in mid-July, that DACA was illegal, um, can't be um, can't, can't be accepted as a status, and that no new DACA um, potential people uh, can have their applications even received by our government. They cannot apply, so no more DACA. If you were a DACA recipient prior to this ruling of July 16, um, you can continue to stay so if you renew every two years. But it's a very scary status, and you never know if you're really going to be here or not. Yeah, how, how much yeah. longer. Yeah. Let's go back to something you said in 2020, if I'm correct. You said, and this is a quote, the federal government is not contributing, but rather is adding to the expenses in caring for our vulnerable immigrant population, end quote. And my question for you is, has this changed in any way since you said it in 2020? It, it has. The reason the government had made it so hard was one, a couple of executive orders by the administration, um, the zero tolerance, if if an asylum seeker came to what wasn't officially um, port of entry, the border wall, of course, and uh, also the return to Mexico policy. These have been revoked by President Biden's executive orders, um, but also 
the previous administration put a cap on the number of refugees that could come in and set up so many obstacles for asylum seekers that there were just very few coming into the U.S. And as a result, the infrastructure for admitting and resettling refugees and asylum seekers kind of fell apart on both the governmental and the private nonprofit levels. So a lot of staff were let go, you know, with the resettlement agencies as well. And now, you know, they had to be rehired and retrained. And it takes a long time for that to happen, but it is happening. It's, it's gradual, but it's happening. Okay. Next, I'd like to talk about a number that I find absolutely astounding. And the number is this. In 2018, approximately 65%, 65% of all foreign-born adults were employed in our economy. And if that's so, why don't the economic contributions of immigrants get more media coverage than, than, than it does? I, I think there are a few reasons. One, it's very politically charged. Um, there's also some racism behind it because many of the immigrants are people of color. But also in order to explain how the immigrants are helping our economy, it gets very involved and kind of boring and you almost need an easel, you know, one of those big sheets to explain it all and write down numbers and show through a spreadsheet. And people don't want to hear that. And unfortunately, as an alternative, we're just exporting a lot of our jobs out. There also were problems with allowing people to come in and having the resources to adjust their credentials to something that would be similar in the United States, that a lot of them have medical backgrounds, but it's hard to convert that to something certifiable in the US. So it's it's also been known that you know, new new immigrants into the country generally are an expense, a net expense to the country for the first couple of years. But then after that, can fill many of the jobs that need filling, especially yeah. on farms. And, um, and end up adding to the economy with taxes and their own contributions to the workforce. Okay. Uh, finally, for listeners who might want to join in your work after mm -hmm. hearing you talk about it, uh, how can they get in touch if they want to join this work? Okay. The best way, the, I'll, give, I'll give you three um, possibilities. The best one is to contact Exodus refugee immigration, which you can just Google on the web. Also, Bloomington Refugee Support Network, which you can Google on the web. Also, if you'd like to just find out more about which groups are welcoming various humanitarian parolees here in Bloomington and so forth, you can always contact me and I can uh, connect you to resources. And my email would be Diane, D-I-A-N-E, dot Legomsky, L-E-G-O-M-S-K-Y at gmail.com. And those would probably be the best ways. Okay, very good. Uh, Lionel Legomsky, thank you very much for being with us here today. Thank you. And, and to our listening audience, thank you for listening to us on the Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan grassroots organization led by citizens that's been fighting since 1920 to improve our government and to engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. I hope you can join us next month when we will be talking to 
Maggie Sullivan. Maggie Sullivan is the watershed coordinator for the Friends of Lake Monroe, and she'll be talking to us about how we can work to protect Lake Monroe.